Have you ever gone into a museum of modern art? Ever suspect any of the works to be forgeries? Does anything ever seem off to you? Does a work supposedly by Picasso or Modigliani ever seem to be missing that certain something, a je ne sais quoi, that their best works possess? Probably not, right? It's highly possible that you've never thought about it at all. The possibility that some works in museums that thousands of people walk by and photograph and fawn over are not originals, but skilled forgeries. And why should you doubt their authenticity? Museums are, by and large, temples to art. Besides the prestigious universities, a great deal of the world's most authoritative voices on art are employed by museums. Just by walking through the doors, one feels as if they are walking into a den of knowledge and history. Plus, exceptional forgeries often are incredibly difficult to tell from the original. Some people, with a trained eye, are able to quickly pick out a fake from the real deal, but these people are few in number. The truth is, the majority of us, even a great deal of people working within the art world itself, would struggle to detect a forgery without being primed. So it is doubtful that most regular people would feel like they had the knowledge to pass a judgment on the work of a master. So have you ever been unwittingly beguiled by a forged artwork? And if you have, how often does that happen? That question is difficult to answer chiefly, of course, for the reason that the best fakes are never detected. It is a strange thing to consider, but when you really think about it, not wholly unbelievable. It varies by time period and specific artists, but experts say that something like between 10 and 40% of works on the market by major artists today are fakes, or edited or over-restored to the point of being fake. A former director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Thomas Hoving, who ran the museum between 1967 and 1977, said that some 40% of works that the museum considered purchasing during his time fell into one of these categories. Other art authorities, journalists, and dealers have made the claims that a minimum of 10% of major Impressionist artworks are bogus, and 40% of supposedly Russian avant-garde works are forged. So we can come to the conclusion that there must indeed be a fairly reasonable number of forgeries floating around the art market. And each one of these forgeries that slips through the cracks taints the historical record and oeuvre of the forged artist. There are few, if any, art scams in the recent past that have resulted in the corruption of more collections than the case of two Brits named John Myatt and John Drew. Between the years of 1986 and 1993, the latter John, whose birth name was John Cockett, peddled over 200 works purportedly by artists like Henri Matisse, Alberto Giacometti, Marc Chacal, Le Corbusier, Jean Dubuffet, Ben Nicholson, and Graham Sutherland to private dealers in multiple major cities and big auction houses like Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips. But the glaring detail that was not revealed till years later was that none of these were authentic. Indeed, they were all created by a struggling single father, art teacher, and weekend painter named John Myatt. Myatt's work in the field of creating phony artworks began instantly enough when, short on cash and struggling to be able to make ends meet and take care of his children, he started selling what he called genuine fakes, artworks that were meant to look like the works of great modern artists. He was never passing them off as the real thing, just very convincing pastiches, until a shady character named John Drew came along with an offer that down-on-his-luck Myatt could not afford to pass up. What followed is an unbelievable tale of hoaxing and scamming, false identities, fake provenances, and even, yes, arson and murder, which ensnared a whole web of dealers, curators, academics, and museum personnel. The con is unprecedented in the recent history of art crime for its scope and success, and the damage it caused to archives and reputations is still being cleaned up to this day. 
My name is Nanagan Gadze, and on this, the fifth episode of the Art Crime Cast, I will be exploring the case of Myatt, Drew, and the Genuine Fakes. The thing that John Drew did that caused so much lasting damage was first tainting the market with so many fake paintings, only a fraction of which have been recovered. Second, part of his scam involved going into the archives of major museums and artistic institutions, London's Tate and the Victorian Albert Museum to name two, and inserting fabricated pages into official catalogs, as well as stealing from other document caches to concoct fake provenances for the forgeries. The archives of museums are overlooked but important keepers of art historical information, just as the museum proper maintains their collection of the art itself. Drew's actions, which I will detail as we go on, adversely affected the trust museums can have in researchers using their archives, and researchers' trust in those archives' reliability. John Drew is a character of almost unbelievably ill repute and extremely shady history, as you will learn. He went to prison for four years in 1999 for his work in this particular scam, and it is important to note that he was the mastermind. Myatt was the artist, and he was actively participating in keeping the scam going and did end up being sentenced to prison for a year and serving four months, but his actions were nothing compared to the conniving of Drew who drove the bus. He is currently serving another eight years in prison for defrauding an elderly retiree of her life savings in 2012. His sentencing judge in that case called him the most dishonest and devious person that he'd ever had to deal with. Besides the scope of Drew's dastardliness, the other thing that is most shocking about this case is how many people were duped. Maya did not even paint with artists' quality pigment for his forgeries. He used house paint thinned with KY jelly. Many of the works that were successfully peddled were admittedly sloppy, and some of Drew's fake identities and provenances truly should have raised more eyebrows among experts, museum personnel, archives, and dealers. It is a hard lesson to them all that they did not. It is also a relief to those few eagle-eyed authenticators and protectors of artists' legacies who caught on that there is still something to be said for connoisseurship. Before I launch into where all this began, I encourage you to check out this podcast's blog at theartcrimecast.wordpress.com, which features posts for every episode with all kinds of interesting images and video as supplements. Also, if you are interested in this case and want a deeper look at it, check out Provenance, How a Con Man and the Forger Rewrote the History of Modern Art by Lainey Salisbury and Ali Sujo, which was a great resource for this episode and is a generally fascinating read. Anyway, returning to the starting point of this case, the genuine fakes of John Myatt. Life for Myatt has started off promising. He'd gone to art school and made some small success as an artist painting competent but unexciting landscapes. When that failed to take off, he worked as a music writer and producer where one song he wrote ended up in the UK Top 40. However, long-term success proved elusive again, and by the early 80s, his wife had left him with their two kids, and 41-year-old Myatt felt well and truly washed up. He barely had enough money to feed his children and heat his house, and was only working part-time as a kid's art teacher. So, in 1986, he put out an ad in a news magazine called Private Eye, a satirical publication similar to The Onion. In the ad, he offered genuine fakes of 19th and 20th century artists from about £150 or $200. He had gotten the idea from, for this from an occurrence a few years back. He had offered to paint a facsimile of French fauvist artist Raoul Dufy for an old boss, compete, complete with a forged signature. It nabbed him £200 and the hilarious revelation from his boss that an art historian friend was tricked by the fake work. To his surprise, commissions started rolling in, 
everything from Claude Monet water lily paintings to portraits in the style of Joshua Reynolds. And that is how Maya ended up getting roped in with Drew. He got a phone call from someone claiming to be a physicist from London named Dr. John Drew, who was asking if he could have a nice Matisse. Maya acquiesced, and they ended up meeting in person at a bar in the London train station. The fast-talking, well-dressed, and smooth-operating Drew told Maya that he was a professor of nuclear physics and an officer of the Ministry of Defense and British Intelligence. The stories he told were fascinating and exciting for someone living such a run-down existence as Maya. Over the course of the next few months, their acquaintance would grow. Drew commissioned more works, a Paul Klee, a few Dutch old master-style portraits, and a seascape. Drew had Myatt over at his house in an upscale Jewish suburb in London where he introduced him to his partner, an Israeli doctor named Batsheva Gudsmid, with whom he had two children. Next, Drew gave Myatt free reign to create whatever sort of work he wanted, not direct copies, but pastiches, a new Brock or Bisser or Destal. Myatt was having a good time with making them and was making good money off his partnership of sorts with Drew and Drew began to mine Myatt for information about the art world, how authentication worked, the structure, and so on. This was a time when the art market was the talk of the town. The 1980s, as one could expect, saw the greatest art price boom in history. The trend of artwork selling for what seems like amazingly, or ludicrously depending on who you ask, high prices started in that decade. Works increased in value from the thousands in the 60s and 70s to the double-digit millions in the 80s. Yo Picasso, an eponymous self-portrait by the legendary Pablo Picasso, sold for $47.9 million in 1989, up from a sale price of about $6 million eight years previously. Van Gogh was a particularly hot name. Irises sold for $53.9 million in 1987, and a Japanese paper company magnate bought Portrait of Dr. Gachet in 1990 for an astonishing $82.5 million. He had it promptly put in a climate-controlled warehouse in Tokyo. Its whereabouts are currently unknown. The main point is, art was becoming more and more of a commodity in that day and age. The big auction houses started trying to appeal more and more to the new business ultra-rich. Paintings were being talked about in terms of liquidity and investment. It was no wonder that some slimy characters like Drew sat up and took notice. In hindsight, one can see how Drew was putting together the pieces and Myatt was too charmed and thankful for his patronage to notice. He was still having a hard time making ends meet, however, and was dealing with personal life appeals with his ex-wife. Drew was his confidant and encouraged him to focus on his paintings. One day, Drew informed Myatt that he'd taken one of his pastiche works to Christie's, one of the two major art auction houses. According to Drew, Christie said that one of Myatt's works was, that was a pastiche of the Cubist artist Albert Glisé could go for at least £25,000 at auction, about $32,000. Drew said he'd give Myatt half that if he could handle selling the work. He even showed Myatt the cash. It was clear at that point that he had already sold it. Cash-strapped and stressed Myatt was between a rock and a hard place. So thus it began. Drew recruited a local antiques dealer from his neighborhood named Danny Berger to help move some of the works. He began with some fakes of Roger Bisser, a French artist best known for his works in the 40s through 60s, abstract pieces full of rough brushwork and murky colors, as well as a fake Nicolas de Stahl. 
De Stahl was a Russian-born French immigre whose best-known works were highly abstract landscapes executed in thickly applied impasto paint and geometric shapes. They are probably artists you have not heard of, and from here we can see what one of the trademarks of Drew's scamming was. The artists that he had Mayat make fakes of were not blockbuster artists, not Van Gogh or Renoir that were at the time selling for millions. He picked the respected but far less well-known artists for whom there was a solid market. Works would go for a few thousand to up to a few tens of thousands apiece. Less attention would be drawn that way, and it was a correct summation. It was when he tried to pass off works by better-known artists like Alberto Giacometti that more alarm bells were rung. We will come to that shortly. Anyway, Drew's new dealer Berger did not know he was selling fakes. None of the others he brought in did. Nor was Berger in any way an art expert. But Drew, like every successful con man, could be very convincing. He told Berger that the works belonged to an old friend and mentor named John Catch, and that Catch asked Drew to help him sell a few hundred of his works. Catch was a real person, but he had nothing to do with these works, nor did he have the relationship with Drew that Drew claimed he did. Drew had used the Catch character to convince his partner, Bathsheba Goodsmith, to take out a large mortgage on the house they shared, reassuring her that he was due for a large inheritance from Catch's will. It would never come. Berger, with Drew's assurances of authenticity, was able to sell some of the works to a local London gallerist named Adrian Mybus. 20000 for two of the Bissers, 41000 for a Destal, and another ten for another Bissair. Mybus's world of art dealing is a very demanding one. Overheads for running a gallery are high, competition is fierce, and buying and selling for a living, of course, is risky as it is. So when a good deal such as the one Mybus was presented is spotted, it is prudent to act fast and ask a few questions. Or is it? Of course, the less one digs deep on a prospective purchase, the more likely a swindler may find his way in. But things quickly started to slow down, as Drew's dealer was struggling to sell works with lacking provenances. In terms of art, a provenance is simply a historical record of a work's ownership. A great deal of research and consternation takes place within the art world over provenances, and the spotless one is key to selling a work. People want to know who owned the work and when, to make sure that there is a definite line that can be traced from its creation to its latest sale. This assures authenticity. Having a famous name or institution within the provenance, for example, a king or a famous museum, can boost a work's value. In an auction catalog, it is typically listed along with the photograph and information about a work for sale. Having blank areas or murkiness in the provenance may indicate that the work has traveled through some shady channels, or that it should not be trusted. For example, if a work's provenance suddenly goes dark around the 1940s in Europe, it is a quick indicator that it was likely tainted with the illegal art trade and confiscation conducted by the Nazis and their agents, and was likely stolen from a Jewish collector. Thousands of works were, and reputable dealers and museums should steer clear. Ownership records, inventories, personal archives, and letters. All of these are consulted to put together a work's provenance. It can be at times like a big historical puzzle to trace a work's history. But provenance, just like an artwork itself, can be liable to forgery and tampering. And that is exactly what John Drew realized that he had to do. For the ever crafty and dastardly Drew, it was more than the matter of typing up some fake documents. This wouldn't suffice. He began to build up personal connections to exploit for this purpose, such as with the respected Institute of Contemporary Arts, a gallery, artistic organization, and cultural center in London, who had a long history of showing and connecting the most cutting-edge modern artists. He began to build goodwill amongst this group by pretending to be a wealthy arts patron and historian writing a book on the ICA. 
He gained tr the trust of people important to the organization and donated some of Myatt's fakes, a purported Le Corbusier and a Gia Comédie, to an auction to raise money to maintain and refurbish their archives. These archives contain histor important historical documents, including old catalogs and letters to and from famous artists. He would eventually steal a number of these documents for his own purposes. Thus began Drew's infiltration of archives and his contamination of the historical record. He used his connections with the ICA to gain access to large archives of the Victorian Albert Museum in London. His reputation by then was of a wealthy scientist and art collector, and he kept up with frequent and impressive whining and dining of important people within these organizations at the best of restaurants where all the staff knew him. His next move was to approach the Tate, one of the most important institutions of art in Britain. Its several museums housed the National Collection of British Art, as well as a sizable and important collection of international, modern, and contemporary work. Their archives were Drew's target. Taking along Myatt as his personal art consultant, he brought in two works purported to be by Roger Bisser and offered them as a donation to the Tate. Myatt was terrified at this moment. He knew that the works were not nearly spotless enough to withstand the museum's undoubtedly strict scrutiny. They were painted with house paint, after all, and looked far too clean to be from the 1950s. The Tate was initially very excited about the donation, but shortly after the first meeting, and probably because he had the same idea as Myatt, Drew withdrew the offer for the works, studying provenance issues. In exchange, he told the Tate, he'd give them £20,000, about $26,000, a promise of £500,000 more pounds or $650,000 more dollars to come. The 20000 did come, and half it came out of Myatt's pocket. Some at the Tate, including head archivist Jennifer Booth, were suspicious of the fast-talking Drew, but given his sizable donation, he essentially had carte blanche within the institution. Such is the power of money. Drew used his new clout to get into the Tate's archives, normally reserved for serious researchers and postgraduates. He created imitations of pages of catalogs using computer scanning and an old typewriter, plus photographs of some of Myatt's fakes, and inserted these pages into the Binder-style catalogs within the archives. Thus, new works, with completely phony provenances, filled with invented owners, became part of the artist's oeuvre. Some of the names Drew used here as past owners were of real people he knew, and some were completely fake. It was, by this point, 1989. In the meantime, Myatt, with his confidence boosted again, ramped up his foraging. He created fake Marc Chagall's, Ben Nicholson's, Jean du Buffet's, and more. All these artists had in common that they painted, to some extent, in a deliberately naive, abstracted style and were primarily active in the mid-century modernism. Chagall, a Russian-French artist, created colorful works with subjects that were highly influenced by his Eastern European Jewish background. Du Buffet was a French modernist, and of much of his most famous work from the 1940s onward is done in a style called art brut, meaning raw or outsider art, and taking inspiration from the art of children or the mentally ill. His works in this period have a rough hewn quality to them as a result. Ben Nicholson, a British artist, is known like Distal for abstracted landscapes and geometric compositions. So one could see what Myatt favored for his forgeries. At this time as well, more money was coming in, and he was able to afford to take better care of his kids and donate to charity, which was personally important to the devoutly Christian Myatt. He began to feel more confident and important, quite a turn from his life a few years previous, which was at a decidedly low point. His works were being sold in major auctions around the world, after all. Not that they were in his name. As things were ramping up with the sales of the forgeries, Jennifer Booth of the Tate was not the only one who was smelling a rat. Personnel at the Giacometti Association in Paris, charged with authenticating and protecting the legacy of the artist Alberto Giacometti, in cooperation with Giacometti's widow, widow Annette, scrupulously kept an eye out for fakes. 
Then-director Mary Lisa Palmer, in particular, could quickly pick out works that lacked the depth and power of Giacometti's haunting style. The Swiss artist, who worked in sculpture, drawing, painting, and prints, is an important figure within the Surrealist and Existentialist movements. His works are not the sort of thing most people would want hanging next to the window by aesthetic alone. He painted in limited, murky colors, mostly muddy and dark gray, blues, and greens. His portraits have a haunting look, rendered in a, in a sketchy, scratchy way, and the subjects often stare dead on to the viewer, probing and emotionless. His sculptures are probably the most famous of his output. They often feature extremely emaciated, elongated figures, again rough-hewn, with few distinguishing features, figures standing straight up or stepping forward. Some of them have sold for even the double and triple-digit millions at auction in recent years. Overall, his works have a palpable melancholy and darkness to them, and he was known for being an intense artist who rarely felt a work was finished and always wanted to keep making changes. He is a frequent target of foragers, and people like Mary Lisa Palmer and the Giacometti Association's goal is to stop them. So when she began to be contacted to authenticate some Giacometti's for sale in New York, her very effective internal alarm bells went off, and she was determined to stop the sale. By this point, it was the mid-90s. Dozens of auction houses and authenticators had been scammed by Drew and Myatt, and many of the archives tainted with fake documents. But with the widening of the scope came more and more eyebrows slowly being raised, and the doubts were starting to come together, with eyes poised on Drew and his many associates and aliases. While this was beginning, some far more sinister things were about to occur in Drew's personal life. His relationship with Batsheva Gutsmid was falling apart, with him accusing her of being mentally unstable, getting her fired, and eventually walking out on her with their children once he'd gotten custody. Gutsmit was in a poor state by this point, rightly convinced that her former partner was a criminal, a psychopath, and had used his conniving to get the court to side with him in their children's custody case. He left in his wake a number of incriminating documents, which Gutsmit left with an acquaintance while she went to the police. In her hysterical state, the authorities were less than likely to take much of her word for fact, and, the f in, and in fact, they saw her as more of a mentally unstable, scorned woman. Gutsmit's acquaintance was a local landlord who owned housing rented primarily by foreign students. Drew became convinced that he was going to be blackmailed, repeatedly trying to get Gutsmit to give him information on the acquaintance's house, and telling Mike that he couldn't stand for it, and saying he'd burn the place down. It was January 1995. In the house of the landlord, a young Japanese student renter found a man in the hallway one January night whose description matched Drew's. Not unaccustomed to visitors in the house, she went to sleep, but awoke to the house in flames. The renters clamored to safety, but one, a 25-year-old Hungarian woman, ended up dying of injuries sustained in the escape. The con now had a body count. Based on the description of the witness and Gutsmit, the police arrested John Drew. When it came time to put him in a lineup, Drew had gotten rid of some of his identifying characteristics, like his haircut, glasses, and mustache. The witness, the Japanese student, was unable to pick him out. However, he was on the radar. It would not be long before the dominoes in the deadly confidence game would start to fall. By the end of the previous year as well, Mayat had begun to become more and more disturbed by Drew's presence, instructions, and actions. Drew took advantage of dead and vulnerable people as fodder for his provenances, including Mayat's father and that of an old friend, Daniel Stokes, who later joined Mayat and Drew on the stand for his role but would end up acquitted. One day, Drew showed Myatt some guns that he owned. He also rebuffed Myatt's idea that they should slow down on the selling. Myatt was starting to feel afraid, con concerned that with how deep he was involved, Drew might come after him if he was upset. 
Drew ended up bringing Myatt to an auction at the Venerable Christie's, one of the big two auction houses, where some of Myatt's fake du buffets were on sale. They nabbed almost $80,000. It felt so wrong to Myatt. It was his work, but not his work. The experience depressed and disgusted him. Gutzmit was still pressuring the police to investigate the man she knew faked everything from art to his life story, credentials, and career. In reality, he was not a physicist, nor a government agent, nor an art dealer, or historian, or an authenticator, or even a sleeper Mossad agent as he once claimed. He was born John Cockett in 1948 in southern England. Childhood friends remembered him as an average student, but a compulsive liar and braggart and hoarder of books and newspaper clippings. Intelligent, but slightly strange. He never even finished high school, dropping out and changing his name to Drew. For the next 15 years, records of him are practically non-existent. No employment information, taxes, medical record, or rap sheet. He claims he studied physics in Germany, then taught it in England, then got another PhD in the United States. None of the universities he claims to have been involved with have any record of him. Whilst he, whilst he told Batshiva Gutzmit that he was leaving every day for a job at the Ministry of Defense or a munitions factory, he was really teaching physics at a private school in London. He was fired in 1985 under allegations of inappropriate conduct, setting a gun off on the playground. Pay stubs from this job would eventually be discovered by Gutzmit, who authorities still considered unstable. However, a briefcase of Drews had come into her possession, left in a local cafe where she'd spotted and confronted him. He'd left in a hurry, spiriting away the kids, and she decided to take it to the police. The contents led suspicious investigators to, conclu- to conclude that it was a forger's kit, with glue stick, scissors, and some fake documents and receipts. Scotland Yard's art squad, the small group of detectives dedicated to cases involving art crimes, were brought in. Despite the fact that their numbers fluctuated based on how much people seemed to care at the moment about crimes involving art, they were effective. Just recently, they had pulled off a recovery of the famed Scream, stolen in 1994 from the National Gallery in Oslo, Norway. See episode 3 for a look at that fascinating case. All the suspicions and accusations and the uncomfortable feelings people were having about the forgeries were starting to come together, and the art squad's case was building. At this point, it was nine years since Maya and Drew had started their partnership. Over 200 fake paintings by Amai were circulating between dealers and auction houses, many of whom negligibly sold and authenticated them. Every side points fingers to different people to explain why on earth this could have happened, especially considering that some of the works were so sloppy, provinces so sketchy, and timing were ma- mistakes were made regarding when artists were active in painting what subjects. A number of people involved were probably caught up in the rush of the sale and the profits. Others just labeled the less top-notch forgeries as an artist's bad day, and, it, and it's wholly possible that some got a bad feeling but buried it in order to make money. The largely unregulated, competitive, gossipy, and sniping-filled world of the art market was certainly not short of some major issues, and this case made everybody take a hard look at them. A few years later, in 2001, top leadership within one of the big two auction houses, Sotheby's, was convicted of price-fixing that had occurred in cooperation with leadership at its longtime rival, Christie's. Many within the art world blamed the two legendary houses for encouraging the commodification of the art market and squeezing out many excellent in-house experts with budget cuts to make room for more business-focused parts of their operations or by their sheer mistreatment and undervaluing of them. The art price balloon of the late 1980s and early 90s had deflated to some degree, and the houses and dealers were harmed further by an ongoing recession. Everybody needed to sell more as belts tightened, and often expert suspicion was undermined by this fact in favor of a good sale. Returning to 1995, 
But Sheva Kutzbit surrendered even more bags of incriminating documents to the art squad that she had uncovered while cleaning out her attic, continuing to insist upon Drew's status as a liar, criminal, and murderer. These bags contained fake letters, photographs, catalog pages, gallery receipts, and notes from Drew himself that showed evidence of fake works and fake provenances. It was at this point that Gutsmith also gave the authorities Myatt's name. She did not know who the forger was exactly, she said, but she had once seen a friend of Drew's retouching a painting supposedly by Ben Nicholson at their home. This friend had been introduced to her as Drew's art historian and collection advisor. His name? John Myatt. In September of 1995, police finally arrived at Myatt's doorstep. At this point, Myatt had vocally told Drew not to contact him again and felt that while he was done with the caper, it was possible Drew would come again. He knew Drew had a stockpile of forgeries yet unsold by him, and he hoped this would be enough. The money he had left over from the caper he kept in an emergency fund of a bit over $20,000. He had known for some time that Drew was pocketing a great deal more from the sales than he ever gave Myatt. Really, he was only giving him enough to live on and not much more. Anyway, Mike had retaken his job as a teacher from a decade back, was focusing on taking care of the kids, and shunned painting. He believed greatly that it was inevitable that some of the forgeries would end up being caught onto and things would eventually come back to him. And when he woke up that day to get the kids out of bed, a knock at the door revealed just that. Scotland Yard detectives with a warrant ready to search the house. Mike quietly requested that the police wait until he put his children on their school bus before they commenced with the search, and the detectives, understanding that Myatt was not going to be a threat, agreed. Myatt stood aside once it began, allowing them to bag up his art books, sketches, and artworks. Later, while being interrogated and on the advice of an old policeman friend, he provided the police the full story. They were surprised by his admittance that he'd done all the works in house paint. He was surprised by the revelation that Drew was not at all who he claimed to be. Might also cooperated on identifying dozens of his fakes that they had collected. Then the case against Drew was built, aided by Might's testimony, intense researching, and discussions with some victims, including dealers, gallerists, and skeptics like Jennifer Booth of the Tate and Mary Lisa Palmer of the Gia Committee Association. The police arrived at Drew's house on April 3, 1996. Plenty within proved his crimes, including forged provenance docs, photos, fake catalog pages, and more. He was a pack rat who never seemed to throw anything out. Every question they asked him had a long, winding answer and explanation with increasingly convoluted backstories about his identity, going from a Giacometti dealer to a diplomat organizing World War II reparations between Russia and Germany. He refused to admit guilt repeatedly, even after days of interrogation. Detectives realized the scope of his manipulative behavior and compulsive, endless lying and fabrications. This was not a surprise to those closest to him, like Maya and Kutzmit. They knew he could talk circles around anybody and be the coolest cucumber in the room, even when committing high-level fraud. Quite simply, it was psychopathic behavior. When he was reapprehended after skipping town post-bail release, his new defense was that he had been set up in a massive seven-nation government conspiracy involving the selling of thousands of artworks to finance under-the-table arms deals. He could never provide a single piece of evidence or source for any of this. At his trial, he fired his lawyer for refusing this ludicrous defense. Of course, it took a long time for the case to even come to the six-month trial that it did because Drew was compulsively and constantly faking all kinds of health problems to push the date back. Six years in prison was John Drew's final punishment for conspiracy to defraud, forgery, theft, and so on. Might only got a year for conspiracy to defraud, and the judge, the judge acknowledging his vulnerability at the time and how manipulative Drew the puppet master was. 
Drew was released in 2000 after four years, tried and failed to mount an appeal to his conviction, and lived with the wife he married after leaving Batsheva Gutzmit, sticking to his story that he was the fall guy for the secret arms deal. He never produced evidence of this to anyone who inquired, though he was adamant that it existed. He is now in prison for the separate defrauding of a retiree of hundreds of thousands of dollars. In contrast, things have certainly turned around for John Myatt. In prison, he served only four months of his sentence, and his nickname there was Picasso because he created other inmates' portraits in exchange for phone cards. Back at his home, people in his small town, who had never doubted his victimhood, prayed for his well-being. Whilst he was determined to never paint again upon his release, the lead detective on the case that had brought him down, Sergeant Jonathan Searle, asked him to paint his family portrait for a few thousand pounds, assuring Myatt that he has serious talent that he may still make a living off of. Commissions by the curious and people who'd gotten to know him in the trial started to come in. Myatt reopened his genuine fakes business, putting on a successful show and bringing in more commissions along with requests to lecture on art fraud. He got remarried and eventually hosted shows on British cable demonstrating how to paint like renowned artists and a show on celebrity portraiture. His original works were selling for, for the double-digit thousands of pounds. The long-time failed artist was finally achieving success in his own name, and it felt good. He claims that whenever he sees one of his fake works, one that the police never got their hands on in a catalog or a museum, he doesn't sound the alarm. His rationale is that he does not want the paintings destroyed, nor does he want the collector to suffer the financial and emotional damage that would come from such a revelation. The longer that these works stay in the market, the longer and more trusted their provenances get, and the less chance there is that they will be detected. There were 200 there were 200 paintings of mine in circulation, of which they had recovered 80. Uh, so by simple sort of subtraction, you can figure out that there are 120 paintings by me um, in the style of, or assumed to be by other artists, which are, of course, uh, fakes. Is this wrong of him? Does he have a duty, as someone with the knowledge, to report upon one of his fakes when he sees one? Or does it not matter at the end of the day? If everybody believes a work is a genuine Matisse or Dubuffet or Giacometti and cherishes it, does it matter if it isn't a legitimate work by the artist? In any case, a great deal of people lost money and suffered from damaged reputations as a result of this case. It sent a shock through the art world, and rightly so. But it also occurred in the 80s and 90s, when the internet was in its infancy and computer technology was far from as advanced as it is now. Drew used scissors, a glue stick, and a typewriter to manufacture his fake provenance docs, and Myatt's research was limited to what he can find in art books. Given the power of the technology we have now, it is easy to envision some future con man, hitherto unknown, creating an even more sophisticated forgery ruse by taking advantage of new technology. In fact, it is probably not a matter of if, but when. We can only hope that this time, the art world will be ready. This has been episode 5 and the series finale of the Art Crimecast. My name is Nana Ngadze and thank you one last time for listening. In the future I might do a one-off type special episode, but for now I'm going to leave it here. Just quickly want to thank a few people, uh, Mom, Salome, Ted, Felinda, James, and Griffin. Uh, thank you specifically and especially. And then our music for this episode, uh, the intro and outro and uh, heard throughout was The Thieving Magpie by Rossini, Money by Pink Floyd, and an, an excerpt from an interview from Art Market UK of John Might himself.